Good evening, everyone. My name is Danny, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet. And I am, I was thinking earlier this week about what are things that make me feel uncomfortable? Okay. So what I mean by the word uncomfortable is every, every facet of the word that I could think of, whether it's like physical uncomfortability or like emotional uncomfortability or like awkwardness uncomfortability. So here's a few of my, my current highlights, all right? So the first one that I have is um, when I eat my weight in food at either like Hoopty-Doo or Ohana or on a Disney cruise. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like that feeling of uncomfortability. Like I have eaten too much good food. Now, I, I'll be candid. That is my favorite type of uncomfortability in the world. Um, after like the 10th strawberry shortcake at Hoopty-Doo, I'm feeling pretty uncomfortable and pretty good about my life. Um, I was, uh, I'm also thinking about... Um, that feeling when other people are like watching your every move, like they're hovering. Maybe you've had a boss that has done that before. Um, my most current version is with our dog Duffy and our two kids. They hover like crazy. Abby, I mentioned this before, she's nine months old now and she's crawling and she will stalk me to every room. And she's like, 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 kind of like, like in a really bad horror movie, like this creature that's just crawling after me going ah, 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 like that. It's, it's adorable. And like, stop, like stop following me to every room. And our dog is just always right next to wherever me or Allie is at. Just that feeling though of like, kind of like that creepy uncomfortability, right? Um, please never use this against me, but styrofoam makes me super uncomfortable. It, it is my enemy. In fact, if I were to ever be tortured in persecution, styrofoam would be the way to really inflict the most damage that I can think of. Not really, but it could do a lot. Um, so styrofoam makes me very uncomfortable. Um, and then the last, um, I usually, if you ever see me down, um, like around Disney property or in downtown Winter Garden, I'm usually wearing a backpack and my backpack has my stuff in it. I don't know. I just carry a backpack around with me because I'm still nine years old. So I wear my backpack everywhere. And then uh, sometimes I'll take a seat, but my backpack's still on. And you know that feeling, that uncomfortable feeling of like when your backpack is still on? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? It's just like kind of weird and awkward, uncomfortable. Um, sitting on a fence, I don't do this very often, um, but when I have in the past, sitting on a fence is not a very comfortable position. Who would have thought that like, like a gated fence is not the most ideal version of a sitting space? It's uncomfortable. And I bring this up because this is exactly how I felt most of my life growing up, especially as I was entering into adulthood. Uncomfortable. Um, I was comfortably uncomfortable, is a phrase I'm going to be using a lot tonight. Comfortably uncomfortable with the decisions I was making in my life. See, at the age of 18, I was tapped to lead the youth group at my church. The only problem is that my faith wasn't ready for that space. And I was living the ultimate life of a hypocrite that I could ever dream of. Um, I would be doing, leading youth group on Sunday and on Saturday night, partying with my friends, getting drunk and getting high. Like it was no big deal. And sometimes even on Sunday nights, I would like throw the keys to the kids. Not joking. I actually did this before. I threw the keys to the kids of the church and had them lock up so that I could get going to the parties next. And I, and, and I think back to that and I, was, I, I felt so comfortable with my uncomfortability. I was, it's like I was sitting on a fence 
And I was finding myself viewing my sin is not that big of a deal, more like a nuisance rather than something truly worth dealing with. I was finding myself viewing my, my enjoying my sinful choices as, as not big enough that God couldn't overcome them. But knowing too much about God to fully even enjoy my bad decisions, does that kind of make sense? Like I couldn't enjoy either because I was living in two worlds. But I was sitting on that fence. And as I've been thinking this week of what that feeling felt like, especially in light of the passage we're getting into tonight, there was a quote that came up, um, that came to me this week that I thought was super good and super helpful to kind of describe this phenomenon. It's by a guy named D.A. Carson, and here's how he wrote it. That people do not drift toward holiness. You see, apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, and obedience to the scriptures, to faith and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience, and we call it freedom. We drift towards superstition, and we call it faith. We cherish the, indiscipl- the indiscipline of lost self-control, and we call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. Now, at the outset, I do want to make this clear that the, that the, the passage that we're going to be reading tonight, there's some pretty difficult and kind of heavy things in it. But for those of you in the room, especially any of you who do, would not call yourselves a Christian, that would not say that you follow after Jesus, that you've surrendered your life to him, this isn't about you. This isn't about our pointing out our culture. This is about Paul, the guy who wrote this letter, writing to a specific group of followers of Jesus about 2,000 years ago and encouraging them with the truth of the gospel in their day and in their age. And for those of us like me who do follow Jesus, we can find ourselves, though, living still in the space of comfortable uncomfortability. And we, we gloss over this in a number of ways. We either, um, we either make it not so overt, like we use statements like, well, that's just my personality, or like, that's just my Enneagram number, or, um, or, or, that's, or my personal go-to is something like, well, at least I am still better than that person over there or that group of people or that end of the political spectrum or whatever. All of these things can just be devices that we use in an effort to be okay with the fact that we're not actually okay. To be comfortable with actually living very uncomfortably. So we can grow comfortable with sitting on the fence, but if you have sat, sat on a fence like me for very long at all, you know that it hurts your butt. Like it's not very comfortable, right? So what do we do with our comfortable uncomfortability? Now, as we journey into the book of Colossians tonight, let's see how Paul calls out the comfortability within this local church. So we're in Colossians chapter three, starting in verse five. If you are using a smart device. Um, I am reading out the English Standard Version if you just want to be able to read it with the exact same words I am using tonight. Okay, so we are going to start in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Paul starts off strong here, right guys? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So let's break this down almost one word at a time, but I'm going to start in the middle with the word therefore. Therefore. 
if you've been around here for very long, you know that I love the word therefore, because whenever we get that word therefore, it means you have to look at what just came before it. In, in other words, in light of what happened or what was just said, this matters, because otherwise we begin to soundbite different passages of the scriptures and interpret them however we feel is best instead of reading it in its proper context. So therefore, in light of, well, what did we talk about last week? Well, if you're here last week, um, or if you weren't here last week, you can always podcast last week. Um, but last week, we discovered Paul's encouragement to this church that since they have been rescued and united with King Jesus, that they should be captivated by his kingdom. So in light of this epic reality and opportunity, they are being called to kick out the remnants of the old kingdom of this world that is found in their lives, in their hearts, and in their minds. And that is the context of therefore. So why would Paul be so severe to say, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? In other words, in light of the fact that you have been rescued to a new kingdom, don't live any longer in the old kingdom. That old way was a mess. Don't live there anymore. So that is Paul's encouragement because just like us, these early followers of Jesus were tempted to excuse or to downplay the severity of somewhat of what has become permissible in their context. So Paul lays out to this church two lists that we're going to be reading tonight. And there are two lists of permissible sins that have been allowed within their community for far too long that are just as relevant today as they were back then. But even as we journey on this list, I, here's what I want to be the focus. Neither of these lists are meant to be all-encompassing or to dictate some level of a super sin. Like there is some level or some category of sin that is somehow worse than all others. He is specifically writing into a specific context to expose two specific lists that were applicable to the people he was writing to. So let's go ahead and start with verse five, finishing up that verse. So put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Buckle up. He starts with sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So Paul lists out first a list that is connected to sexual ethics. The way that sexuality is played out within the life of the human. So he talks about a few different words, and I'm going to give kind of quick definitions. You could do studies onto each of these words, um, and feel free to. But I'm going to give quick definitions for these so that we can continue on and get to, and as we continue shaping the main point of what we're getting at tonight. So first of all, there's the word sex, the phrase sexual immorality. Now, if you've been with us um, in our journey through Paul's letters, he often refers to this at least once in each letter because of its prevalence in each culture that he's writing to. And this is the Greek word porneia. Porneia obviously is where we get our word pornography from, but it is much more than just that. And here's the best definition I've ever found for porneia. Porneia or sexual immorality is any version of sexual expression that is outside of God's design of marriage. So any version of sexual expression or sexual thought that is outside of God's covenant of marriage is porneia. Now, impurity. This is the corrosive stain of character that happens because of spaces of darkness and sin in our lives. So in other words, as we engage in a lot in our lives and we allow something to be permissible in our lives, we step to we start to become impure or corrupted that there are things that we have allowed in and it begins to darken everything about us. So that's what he's talking about in impurity, evil desire. 
Now, evil desire is an interesting one because this is the longing of every human heart, which is to define good and bad on our own terms. That's our natural posture is how can I make things my way? How can I define what truth is my way? Covetness, the yearning for that which is not ours. And it's interesting that he connects that to which is idolatry. So idolatry is anytime we take anything that is either good, bad, or other, and we elevate it to a level where we begin to focus our attention to a space of near worship. So when we focus on any created things as if it was actually the creator, as if it was the main thing, is idolatry. Uh, John Calvin once said that the human heart is an idol factory. We are always in looking for our next idol to elevate up. And that can be any number of things, not just something to do with sexual expression of any kind, but it can be anything. It can be technology. It can be um, our jobs, our relationships, Um, We can make a number of things into a space of idolatry, but covetousness is a type of idolatry. What he's saying that when you are yearning for something that is not yours, it is elevating something to a place of idolatry. So Paul lists out this list of sins that are connected to to sexual ethics. Now in verse eight, we get the second list. So let me go ahead and we're gonna fast forward to that list really quick, just so we get both lists on the table. But now you must put them all away. And here he goes, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So Paul lists out a number of sins that are connected to and categorized by anger, frustration, bitterness. Look at these. We have anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. So he kind of goes from what's happening in the head and in the heart all the way to what comes out of the tongue. Or can I, is this fair to say what happens with our fingers on a digital screen? You know, like on Twitter, when we're posting videos or, posting or, or tweeting out tweets, things that are allowing the anger and bitterness and frustration and rage to kind of begin to come through into a digital format. So Paul is talking about all of these things. And both of these lists in ancient times are just as applicable as they are today. Now, some of us may be quick to call out sexual sins in our in ourselves, in our culture, in our friends. We might be quick to call out that list, right? We're like, yeah, somebody should definitely call out that list over there, but then become comfortably uncomfortable with this other list over here of anger and malice, wrath and gossip, frustration and bitterness. Other of us may think, well, whatever happens in my sex life or in the sex life of other people, that's, that's, that's our own business. We shouldn't really poke into that very much. But so we're like, that list is okay. But that other list, now that list is detestable. We detest vile tweets sent out by angry individuals or we, or we get so frustrated by individuals who come into a conversation like a bulldozer with their angry opinions. So we can easily say one of these two lists is the terrible one. But the other one, well, that one's probably decent enough. But what Paul's getting at is essentially nobody's safe. In essence, what he's saying is all of us should be challenged by the way of Jesus, that none of us should think that we are better than anybody else, that all of us need radical grace and all of us need the reminder to come back and to focus our gaze on Jesus. The reality is with both of these lists that they reflect two streams of sin and brokenness that we can easily become comfortably uncomfortable with. We can use other lines like, well, 
I'm just a passionate person. It's not my fault that they keep taking it the wrong way every time. We can think, well, I couldn't imagine denying myself what I desire in life. That just sounds crazy. Um, We could think, is it really that big of a deal? Or things like, well, the only people who still care about that kind of stuff are the legalistic, judgmental religious people in churches. So I'm not going to, I'm not even going to consider this at all. We see throughout the centuries, especially over the course of the last century in America, there have been those who follow after Jesus, or at least claim to, who have made one specific sin or stream of brokenness to be some sort of super sin. And and I'm going to be honest with you, that's super unhelpful, and I don't believe that honors the heart of the gospel. The truth is, is that there isn't one person, one one type of sin, one um, people group that epitomizes human brokenness. Because what the scriptures talk about is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So there isn't this I'm better than. It's irrelevant. It's super irrelevant. But instead, what we need to realize, though, is that just because knuckleheads, which I'm included in that sometimes. Knuckleheads who sometimes communicate truth without love. That doesn't mean that the truth of the scriptures are not still relevant for those who follow after Jesus today. See, God still cares. His desire for life, light, and freedom for your life doesn't expire or become irrelevant based on the cultural norms of our day or the cultural norms of our own thoughts and desires. And that's where Paul goes in verse six. So let's go back a little bit and read back to verse six. So this is after that first list, the list connected to sexual ethics. Here's what he says. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Yay, now we're at the wrath of God. Isn't this message getting better and better? Um, So now we're at wrath of God. Now I'm gonna go ahead and assume that most of us who have ever seen that phrase, the wrath of God used, is it's typically wielded like the battle axe to break somebody down and to, to force somebody into obedience in some way. That's not Paul's heart in this. But here, so let's start by unpacking a little bit of what the wrath of God is and what we can see throughout the scriptures. Now, when we're talking about the wrath of God, oftentimes theologians talk about the wrath of God in two ways, as active wrath and passive wrath. And here's what I mean by that, because they often also overlap. Um, Active wrath, um, and also, by the way, when you hear the word wrath, a great word that is very much connected into that is consequences. So there are consequences in life in multitude of ways. But when we're talking about the active wrath of God, we're talking about either the momentary or the eternal eternal consequences based on humanity's rebellion against a loving and holy God. So this is what we see in the Old Testament when like Pharaoh refused to allow the Hebrew people to leave Egypt. So God sent plagues onto Egypt so um, so that the Pharaoh would be forced to allow them to leave bondage and oppression. So that was his active wrath being displayed through plagues. It also happened in the life of the early church, even with an Ananias and Sapphira, who are two individuals who are married, and they, um, they pretended and they um, bolstered themselves to be better in their community than they actually were. They were lying to their community about their level of generosity, and God made an example of them by striking them down dead. Now, here's the truth with both of those examples and all the other examples in the scriptures. I don't want to sugarcoat those, and I don't want to paint over them. And I also don't want to try to explain them all away. But what I do know is that there is a, there is a sense where the, God can have active wrath sometimes, and he has displayed that in the scriptures. Now, here's, the, here's where the good news comes in. That, the, that 
there's an eternal aspect to God's wrath, that we have an eternal separation from God as an option for those who do not follow the way of Jesus. But here's the point of that. Jesus came to make a way where there was no way. Where there was wrath, Jesus drank the wrath of God when he put himself, allowed himself to be put onto the cross so that he could bear that wrath, that anger, that frustration, that holy judgment on himself. The consequences that were due to humanity, he took on himself. That is the heart of the gospel. Now, when we're talking about passive wrath, passive wrath comes in a number of different ways, but these are the practical consequences that are typically based on the brokenness or the, of ourselves or the sinfulness of others. So, for example, if somebody steals your car, there is a practical consequence to that for you. You don't have your car anymore. There is also um, a practical consequence for that person. They have now broken a law, and that is bad, and they will have to face the consequences of that. Now, is God faithful and just to forgive? Is he going to forgive that person for stealing the car? Yes, if they were to turn to him and ask, and ask him to, for, for forgiveness, he'd absolutely do that. Now, does that mean that we can just go, and you're like, well, I stole that car, but like God forgave me, so we're good now, right? Like, no, you're probably still going to go in front of a court for stealing a car. It's frowned upon in our society. Um, so there is that area of when we lie and when we get caught that others might lose trust in us. And throughout the scriptures, we also see this, uh, this attribute demonstrated in God. And that oftentimes though, the past and the active is not so clear to see. That sometimes when we are looking at that, what we see is that consequences come to actions. And that's what Paul's heart is in this. He is not saying, you guys better shape up because God is gonna punish you. What he is getting at is there are consequences that come both naturally and by God's care and affection with this. I think about this personally in my own life. I remember turning 18. Um, like I mentioned before, when I was coming into adulthood, I received all this freedom as an adult to do whatever I wanted. And I was making a bunch of really boneheaded decisions um, with alcohol and drugs. And my parents had some level of awareness with them. Now, before... When I, was still, when I was still in high school, my parents would have parented me one way. But all of a sudden, I was an adult. And they lifted their protection of some of their parenting style with me. They allowed me to suffer the consequences of my actions. Now, I never got a DUI. I never had some crazy thing happen in my story that all of a sudden I was like, oh my goodness. But you know what it did leave me with? My consequence was an extreme lack of fulfillment. I was just like, gosh, I'm doing whatever I want for the first time in my life and it's coming up empty. And if my parents would have tried to control that and stop that from happening, the truth is, is I may have never experienced that. But because they did, I turned to Jesus. Because they did that, because the consequence was my lack of fulfillment and my frustration within myself, I turned to Jesus which is the heart of what Paul's getting at in here. So what he is writing is you have been, you have invited in consequences by your desires to do things your own way. So he's asking them, turn back to Jesus. Turn back to the things that are helpful and beneficial and life-giving in your life. And in verse seven, he continues from that thought. He says, but now, I'm sorry, in these, you two once walked. So in that list, that first list, you used to walk by these. You used to be defined by these. These used to be the defining features that your moral compass was guided by these desires. In these, you two once walked when you were living in them. So this was the way that they used to walk. This is the way they used to do life. 
But what he is getting at in verse eight, but now you must put them all away. Don't allow those things that used to define you to continue to define you. Allow yourself to be renewed and transformed that you might walk in the newness of life that has been purchased for you. So he says, but now you must put them all away. And that's where he gets into the other list, right? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So put them away. Put them all away and put them to death. Those are the two phrases in this passage that Paul's using. Notice what he's not saying. He's not saying, don't try to just leash them. Don't try to just say, well, I have it under control. Yeah, it's not ideal for me, but like, I'm gonna control it still. Don't just pretend they aren't a problem. But at the same time, here's what I would desire for all of you. Don't allow these things to be a source of guilt and shame and unworthiness. This is not a list of you shoulds. You should have had this all figured out by now. You are terrible. That is not the heart of Paul. It's not the heart of the gospel. This is the gentle call of a shepherd reminding you that what the father has for you is life, light, and freedom. So why would you settle for anything less? Now in verse nine and 10, Paul continues. He says, do not lie to one another. So kind of going off of that list of um, Sins connected to anger. Do not lie to one another. But here, get this. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. See, that old self belongs to the old kingdom. So we talked about this last week, the idea of there's two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of the world and then there's the kingdom of Jesus. And Jesus's kingdom is defined by life, light, and freedom. And we are called to, if we have, if we have surrendered our lives to Jesus, we are now citizens of a new kingdom, but residents in this old world. But then there is this old kingdom, the kingdom of humanity, where our best intentions, where our ability to define right and wrong on our own terms reigns. So what Paul is getting at is that old self belongs to the old kingdom. You are no longer a citizen of that kingdom. So put off that old self and put on the new self, the citizen of the kingdom of Jesus. The old self is the one who desires to define good and bad on our own terms. The new self is the one who desires to live in the freedom of love. Now, I talked about a guy last week. His name is Augustine. He was an early church father out of Africa. And he had a brilliant explanation of the nature of humanity in its four categories. I think it's really helpful. And I think it's also helpful as we continue on in this passage. So if you're a note taker, this is actually pretty decent to take notes on, mainly because they're not my thoughts. They're the thoughts of somebody much, much smarter and yeah, than, than I am. So, um, so first we have before the fall. So before mankind ever de- desired to define good and bad on our own terms, before we rebelled against God. So there is before the fall. This was defined by humanity living as intended self. And part of intended self, it was true freedom of choice that we, could, that we were able to sin or we were able not to sin. So we're able to choose life or we were able to choose death. We were able to choose relationship with God or not. Now in that freedom, we chose rebellion. Humanity chooses rebellion and we continue under that to this day, which takes us to after the fall, after the fall of mankind. This is where humanity lives as the false self. Humanity lives as the false self. Now the false self or the old man, the old self is not able not to sin. So 
Before the fall, able to sin, able not to sin. After the fall, not able not to sin. In other words, this is where the scriptures talk about that we have been marked by the stain of sin, that our choices are inherently broken, that we are not able to choose love rightly most of the time. So after the fall, not able not to sin. But last week we read about what it means that after we've been united with Jesus, that we are hidden with Christ in God. So humanity can now choose to live to what Paul writes here as the new self. And this means we are able to not sin. Now, what this doesn't mean is that we're able to do that perfectly, that we are able to have it all figured out, that we are going to get every decision right every time. But what it means is that we have been brought to spiritual life and now we are finally able to start learning what it means to look more like Jesus, to live more as we were intended to all along. But we're not perfect, but instead we are hidden with Christ in God. And in that, there is security and freedom. But then also last week, the last verse we read last week is that, that we will one day appear with Christ in glory. And this is where humanity becomes the full, true self, where the new self is fully glorified. And we are now defined by being unable to sin. So to quickly recap that, we were able to sin or able not to sin. Then after that, we we're not able not to sin. Then after that, we we're able to not sin. And then finally, we are unable to sin. Confusing, right? Okay, perfect. All right. Um, so that, what that helps us illustrate, though, is that we are in the space of the already, where we have the ability to live in some degree of freedom, but we're not going to get it right. We're not. But there is a day when death is no more, when temptation is done away with, when all of these spaces of brokenness, no one's ever gonna have to point those out because they won't even be an option. They won't even be a desire in our hearts. Those will be completely done away with. And that is what Paul is getting at here when he's talking about the new self. You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. I love that. And I love that because When we're talking about the image of God, we're getting back to what we were created to be all along. Every single human being you will ever interact with, the best and the worst, are image bearers of the creator of the cosmos. Genesis 1, Genesis 2. We see the beauty of God's image imbued on humanity. But because of our willingness to rebel against God, we have cracked the picture. And we lived broken. But the good news is, is the image of God's still there. The bad news is we broke it. But the better news is Jesus. See, the better news, according to this, is we are being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Humanity, for those of us who follow after Jesus, we are being renewed actively back into the image that we were meant to be all along. That is the active course of events that will lead to this one day when we're unable to sin, when all that oh, and all the junk of this world is completely done away with. We are being renewed into that image. And it's by no coincidence that Paul finishes this, pa- this part of the passage this way. And here's where I'll end it tonight. Here, there is not Greek and Jew. So the church, this church in Colossae is made up of primarily two people groups, the Greeks and the Jews. And 
he is saying that, and in the Roman world, those who were Greeks or those who were Romans were prioritized over Jews, but within the local church, there was a hesitancy towards the Gentiles. So oftentimes in the church, the Jews were being elevated over the Greeks. So out in the world, Greeks over Jews. In the church, there was a temptation for Jews to be over Greeks. Circumcised and uncircumcised. Circumcised were the Jews and uncircumcised would have again been the Greeks, but that was a dividing line in their culture. Then you have barbarians, which is a word that means all non Greeks, all non-Romans were considered barbarians. And with all that comes with that connotation, you were just a barbarian. You were a conquered people. You were, um, you were stupid and you were not liked. And then there's the Scythians, which is the lowest caste on the social order. But then you have slaves and free. So get this again. Let's read it again from the top. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Do you see why that's good news? Let me break it down for you. That is really good news because all of them are image bearers of God. All of them are deeply loved. And for those who have sworn allegiance to Jesus, there is no longer any reason to believe that you have supremacy over another, that you have any version of prioritization over another based on any of this socioeconomic background, ethnicity, nationality, all those things that Paul's writing about right here, no longer a reason for prioritization because Christ is all and in all. That is the way that the old kingdom prioritizes people. No longer. We belong to a new kingdom. And in that kingdom, Christ is all and in all. The call is to no longer live comfortably uncomfortable with any of these spaces, but to instead throw those things off, not not because you ought to, but because it is freedom to. Because apart from those things, we can live to life, light, and freedom. Because apart from those things, we can live in the fullness of what God might have for us. Because apart from those things, we are living to who we were meant to be all along as we are being renewed into the image of our creator. And with a message like this, it can, be, it can be easy to go, okay, got it. I've been really struggling with gossip recently. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna get four of my closest friends and they're all gonna like point out to me every single time I gossip in any way, shape, or form, anything that kind of like sounds gossipy. And we're just gonna do accountability groups. And now, now, here's the thing. Accountability can be super helpful. And I don't wanna discount that at all. But one of the things that can be really sad about spaces of accountability is even when we sometimes with the best intentions invite people in, at a certain point, we start pushing them all back out because we start living back in shame and in a works righteousness mentality where it's like, am I good enough? Did I do enough? Am I earning enough? Am I proving myself enough? Does God love me now? Will they still like me if? Will the church still accept me when? But that's not what we're talking about at all. That's not life in the kingdom. Instead, life in the kingdom is one where we are so aware of our identity that it changes everything. But here's the thing. We talk about this all the time, right? That we are a forgetful people. We humans are forgetful. We forget the goodness of God. We forget about his love. We forget our truest identity. And that's what we need one another for. That's why the local church matters so much for each individual, because we are all in the habit of forgetting the truest things about us. 
And we need one another to do that. That's why as a church, we focus so much of our energy on discipleship, that we have a thing called discipleship groups, D groups, so that we would take time to remind one another what is truest about us and learn about who Jesus is from one another and how who he is impacts everything about us. So don't just settle for, okay, got it. Put those things away so I better get myself better. No, that's the work of the spirit of God moving in you and through you. It's not by our own efforts. It is by us simply saying, God, take it, it's yours. And on the days it gets hard, we need one another to remind, to give that reminder. I remember when, how kind God was to me when I first came to know him and began to follow him. When I finally got off the fence of being comfortably uncomfortable. And he gave me a new life, a new identity, and a new hope. But it would be foolish and it would be me lying if I were to say that I never went back on the fence in any way, shape, or form. And that I'm not still on the fence probably in some ways even right now. The reality is, is we all sit on that fence in one way or another at different points in our life. And see, what I need, what each of us need is to be reminded of who we really are, that you've been adopted into the family of God, that you are a son or a daughter of the king of the cosmos, that you are beloved, you are uniquely loved, you are cared about, you are an image bearer of the Almighty, you are being renewed, and him who began a good work in you will finish it on the day of completion. He is the one, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We need that reminder. I need that reminder from you and we need that reminder from one another. And we need to remember whose kingdom this really is. So we need one another. That's why we join together. That's why it's important that we come together because we are forgetful. We need one another to say, that is not the real you. That is the old self. We need that reminder. And I can just imagine what it would look like to the world around us if we weren't known by just shouting out loud lists of things that people do wrong or what our culture is getting wrong, but we were the people that were vulnerable enough to say, I am messed up and I need your help. Will you come with me? And that as we are doing this, we are learning from one another what it means, like, what it looks like to truly surrender everything to Jesus. That's the kind of church I hope we're growing to become. That's the kind of people that I hope we become. That's what I hope that the future means for when people think about Christians, that they would know us by our love for one another and love to enter into the mess of life with one another. So I'm gonna invite the band to come on forward. And as they do, here's what I would love. I would love to take just a few moments you to just bow your head and just ask the Spirit a simple question. Spirit, Holy Spirit, what, what would you point out in me? What would you desire for me to hand over to you and trust you with? So we're going to go ahead and do that for a few moments, and then I will close our time in prayer. We'll continue on our gathering.
Father, I don't know what each of us are struggling with as we walk in the door. I don't know where each of us are at as we are listening online. But what I do know is that you are good and you know everything about us and you are near to us. That your desire is not just to correct us or to punish us or to punch us in the face. That your hope is for our good, for our benefit, that we would be drawn into who we were meant to be all along. And who we're meant to be all along are people who fall in love with our creator. So Father, wherever we are at in here tonight, whether we are far from you or near to you or somewhere in between, that we would surrender all. God, I pray that you would that you would kick out any spirit that would try to tell people in here about legalism or what it, or working it out by their own efforts. Lord, I know that for me, I have no right to be up here preaching your word. But somehow, your kindness extends even to me. And if it extends even to me, that it can extend to every single one of us. So Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. I pray that you would be pointing us to Jesus, that we'd be captivated by who he is and what he has done, that we may be transformed. God, you are good and you are kind. Pray for good conversations out of this message. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.